Thank you. Thank you, Nicola. Um, that is a great introduction, very eloquent. Uh, I'd like to thank you and your organizing committee and uh, SF for the invitation to come and speak. It's a great privilege uh, for me to be here this morning and to share some of my very personal stories uh, with you. But before I start, I'm from the Eastern Cape, okay? Coming to Gauteng and Johannesburg in particular is great for me because I have good friends here. But also, Gauteng, Johannesburg is home to South Africa's third greatest rugby fraternity team. The Lions. Okay, let's call it the first, the best uh, rugby team in, in South Africa. I was sitting in the plane the other day next to this big free state farmer. He was going down to Durban uh, to see his son and to do some business down there. And uh, we were just chatting. And one of the things that we started speaking about early on was rugby. And uh, during the conversation, he said to me, do you know, Pete, do you know which rugby team I support? So I said, no, come on, it's got to be the Cheetahs. So he said, it's not. It's actually the Sharks. There was a pregnant pause. Now I'm trying to mull over why he's uh, telling me this. And he says, do you know why I support the Sharks? I said, go tell. He says, do you know where the Sharks stay when they go to Bloemfontein to play the Cheetahs? I said, I have no idea. He said, with their parents. <laughs> I've always been fascinated by the nature of the human spirit. What is it that allows some people, against all odds, to persevere, to see their dreams come true, to persevere in their vision that they have for themselves and their businesses? I have never worked with a team of people whose focus it is to fail. Every single one of us want to tell a good story. Every single one of us want to leave a legacy behind. Whether it's within your family, within your business, or within your community um, itself at large. We want to tell a story and we want, to want that story to be successful. But what is success? You know, many, many um, books have been written about how to become successful. And recently, Harvard Business School did a study on what is success and how, what is the secret to success. Let's just call success at, at the moment in inverted commas because there are many definitions of it. And they took 200 people, successful people, and they tried to find a common denominator between those people, a common characteristic that could show that if we did this one thing or if we followed this one process, we would become successful. And you know, at the end of that study, they concluded that having the best education in the world, going to the right universities or colleges, did not particularly show that you were going to become successful. Coming from the right socioeconomic background did not show that you were going to become successful. Going to the best schools, etc. But there was one characteristic that was a significant predictor in all of the, found in 98% of all of those people. That characteristic that they found as a significant predictor in a person's ability to become successful was this one word here, nyamazela, fussbait, perseverance, the ability to see something through to its end despite the hardships you may face in order to achieve that thing. 
And over the past seven or eight years as a professional adventurer, I found myself in a position where I've had to show perseverance in order to achieve the dreams and the visions that I've set out for myself. I have been to some of the highest, driest, coldest, windiest, wettest, most beautiful, most miserable places on this planet. I've just recently returned, as Nicola was saying, from an expedition across Svalbard. This is a world-first expedition where we um, trained our dogs, sorted our dogs out in, in Norway, packed them onto a ship, sailed across the Barents Sea uh, from Norway to this small island at 80 degrees north. It's very, very far north. Um, to try and investigate a very quick and efficient, light way of polar exploration so that one day we can perhaps uh, break the record to the North Pole. So the idea was to train two Greenland uh, sled dogs each. These are amazing dogs. Those two dogs that you see, the one closest to me is uh, Fippling and the other one is Figaro. The Greenland sled dogs, they weigh 50 kilograms each. They are absolutely incredible hounds, um, very friendly but very aggressive towards polar bears um, and very strong dogs, which is what you want uh, in a, an expedition like this. Getting across the Barents Sea was a whole expedition in itself, and we had no idea how testing this was going to be. This was a photograph taken by the Norwegian Coast Guard. Um, they actually came up next to us during the storm. It's a Category 10 storm, and they said, basically on the radio, they said, what on earth are you guys doing here? Our response was, basically, we actually don't know. <laughs> this is a little bit insane. But getting to the island to start the expedition, by the time we got there, we were absolutely finished, just because of the kind of sea conditions that you find in the Barents Sea at that time of the year, which is the end of winter. Continually chipping off ice on the deck. You know, it's very important. There many ships have sunk in the old days from ice forming on the deck people not cleaning it up, and it's very rough getting out in minus 35 degrees centigrade in your wet weather gear with a mallet uh, to try and break the, ice, uh, break the ice off. You can see the dog kennels um, in front of the boat. They are very hardy dogs. They love being in the cold. They don't enjoy the wet um, too much. It wasn't always like this, though. This is arriving at Svalbard on the island. It's a spectacularly beautiful island. We came up next to the ice shelf, put in some ice screws into the shelf, um, packed our dogs, packed ourselves, packed the sleds, got onto the ice, and as quickly as possible, we moved off the ice to get into the interior. And this is how we moved across the island. And the main reason why we need to get off the ice shelf very quickly is this reason right here. Now, coming from South Africa and being an African, we think that we've got the top predators on this planet. I guarantee you, this is the number one predator in the world. There is no greater predator than the polar bear. If it sees you on the ice, it'll hunt you down, it'll come and get you, it'll pull you out of your tent, a lion will never ever go into your tent, um, and it'll kill you unless you do something about it. So we had two military-grade uh, flare guns with us, um, 306 rifle on our sled, and we slept with a Magnum 44 um, with dum-dum bullets on our chest, pretty much. The Norwegian person that I was doing this with, Howard Svidl, um, took part in the race to the South Pole with us. He was one of our competitors in the race to the South Pole. He's been pulled out of his tent by a polar bear. He's got massive scars on his side here. So in our tent set up at night, we'd have our tent facing the one way, we'd have our dogs, because they're a great polar bear deterrent, and on, on the heads of each tent, this, the front and the back of the tent, we'd have a trip flare system. And if the polar bear would come close to the tent, the flare would go up three meters into the air and explode. This is also very high-grade military stuff. 
Um, and when that a grenade explodes, um, you're not going to hear anything for the rest of the day. But at least you're not going to be in the belly of a polar bear. And this is basically how we were dropped off and picked up um, at the end of the expedition. The first part of the expedition, and then five weeks trekking across the island, um, and then being picked up by the boat again. In 2007 and 8, I rode across the Atlantic Ocean with a good friend of mine, Bill Godfrey, from East London. As we all know, East London is the business megacenter of South Africa, right? <laughs> but Bill and I rode in this Woodvale Transatlantic Rowing Race. It's a 5,500-kilometer journey across the southern part of the North Atlantic Ocean from the Canary Islands just off the coast of Morocco to Antigua, 5,500 kilometers later. The race itself is completely 100% unsupported. That means everything that we needed to power ourselves with on that boat needed to be on that boat. And I thought I'd put this cartoon in because it's quite relevant to the times that we're living in at the moment with all the load shedding. I don't know if you remember at the end of 2007, beginning of 2008, we had the beginnings of all our load shedding in South Africa. And uh, that's me speaking on the sat phone and Billy putting in a good stroke there. So we had solar panels, charged batteries, that would then, um, all our instruments would be plugged into, into a key uh, system inside the boat. Bill and I rode this boat here, and it's important for this talk right now. In shifts off, Guma Challenger, in shifts off, one and a half hours on, one and a half hours off, <clears throat> 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 50 days and 12 hours. There wasn't one second on this row <clears throat> that one of us wasn't rowing except for Christmas Day. <clears throat> now, we were very excited about this because on Christmas Day, we were going to sit down and eat our boil-in-the-bag chicken and herb dumplings. That's what we were excited about for a half an hour. Nobody rowing. Now, some of you are giving me that funny look. It's okay. Why would I be excited about eating boil-in-the-bag chicken and herb dumplings for Christmas lunch? Well, up until this stage, we had just been eating freeze-dried food mixed with olive oil. Figure that, 100 mils of olive oil is equivalent to a four-course meal, 900 kilocalories. There's no ways that we could race and eat the amount of, the amount of food that we needed to sustain ourselves with um, without, without adding extra uh, calories, and that was the best way to do it. So imagine we'd do this two, three times a day, 100 mils of olive oil, and you'd just sip it down. When somebody speaks about, did anybody here get given castor oil as a child? Okay, those people are nodding or giving your age away, okay? It doesn't happen anymore, <laughs> I don't think. Um, but when, when, you, when you hear that, do you get a funny feeling inside your stomach? I have that with olive oil now. But it did save us. Bill and I um, won the race in 50 days and 12 hours. We experienced four storms during that race. The last storm happened on the last four days of the race, and we finished at midnight on the last night of that storm, during that day, uh, the storm had waned quite a bit, um, and you'll see some footage of it just now. But the storm in those four days, uh, was about the wind was about 80 to 120 kilometers per hour, and the swell varied from 3 to 10 meters over those four days. Now, I don't know if you can picture the velocity of that storm. You'll see some footage just now. Um, absolutely terrifying. And when we finished that race at midnight... We came into English Harbour, it's a beautiful lagoon uh, on the leeward side of the island, so all the wind was gone, it went very quiet, and we rode into this little lagoon, 
And on the quay side, we had a kilometer and a half still to row. And on the quay side, we could see people holding up flares. And one of the things that we could hear coming across the water was our anthem, Nkosi Sikilele. There were hundreds of South Africans there, um, a lot of people on their yachts and a lot of island people as well. It was an incredible experience getting in. And when I got onto the quayside, Billy was not the first person I hugged, okay? Fifty days out at sea with another man is quite enough. <laughs> the mystery is gone. <laughs> it's a very small rowing, but the first person I hugged was my wife, Kim. And you'll see pictures of her just now. And I put my arms around her and I put my head into her neck and I said, Kim, if I ever say that I want to go and do something like that again, please, you absolutely have to stop me. Because <laughs> I would have lost my mind. Let's fast forward now. And she said, don't worry, Pete, I absolutely will. Three months later, back at home, starting to put on a bit of weight again. I lost 15 kilograms in this row. And I start thinking about my next expedition. It's important, always important to have a dream and a vision for your life. And it dawned on me that no African had ever rowed solo across any ocean. Now, you've got to be really careful what you think about, because it could just become a dream. And you've got to be really careful what you dream about, because that should become reality. And so one day after work, I plucked up enough courage to confront Kim about it. And on the way home from work, I bought a bunch of flowers, because I thought it would soften the discussion. And I learned a really great lesson from that. And the lesson is, guys particularly, if you want to use flowers as a means to try and get your way, you need to buy flowers more regularly. She immediately saw that something was amiss. <laughs> she smelt the rat and she said, Pete, I said, Kim, sorry, Kim, come sit down. There's something I need to chat to you about. And so we started speaking about the solo row across the Atlantic. And I take my hat off to Kim. Because you know what she said to me at the end of that discussion? She said, Pete, you must go and do this thing. I will never ever stop you from achieving those dreams and those visions that you have for your life and for your business. Because for me to do so would to diminish you as a person. She said, go for it, but be warned. And so two years later, there I am after a whole lot of things. I built a boat down in Cape Town. And this boat I named very aptly Nyamazela. Now, if there are any closer people here, you would know what that word means. But let me tell you what it means. Nyamazela means fussbait. It means to endure. I was speaking to a closer woman the other day, and she said, you know, Peter, it actually means a little bit more than just to see something through to its end. She said it means to see something through to its end, but to see it through with significance. And success. And there's a difference between the two. I'm not sure if I'll have time to touch on those differences now. But once again, I rode this boat here, Nyamazela, in shifts of one and a half hours on, one and a half hours off, 24 hours a day, but this time for 76 days. They say if you truly want to know yourself, spend 24 hours in, in complete isolation and then try 76. I learned incredible lessons about myself on this journey. And if you had to say to me, Peter, what is the greatest lesson on all the expeditions that you have taken part in? What is the greatest lesson that you have learned? I would have to say this one thing. And I look at every single person sitting here today. 
And that is this, and that is that you and I have been incredibly made. And that if we put the right processes in place in our lives and in our businesses and in our communities, we can achieve what has previously been, what we have previously conceived impossible in our lives. And therein lies the secret to success. Finding that process that allows you to be successful in any venture or any dream that you perceive for yourself. What does that word impossible mean to you? I want you to try and picture a scene. Picture yourself on this boat. Picture yourself inside that cabin. This is what happened to me on this row. A six-day storm, five nights. The only storm on this race. I'm in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. I'm on parachute anchor. It's a 12-foot round diameter parachute like the ones that they use in the army. It's deployed on a rope, a 100-meter rope, off the bow of the boat. And it's stopping me from going backwards. It's in the water, 20 meters down. And it's stopping me from going backwards in this 80 to 100 kilometer per hour wind. Six to 10 meter swells over those five, six days. And I'm lying inside my cabinet and I'm thinking about whether I'm going to survive that storm or not. And one of the things that I start thinking about as well is my potential in life. Have I limited myself? Have I reached the pinnacle of my life once I've done something like this? Or is there a, a, a lot greater thing? And one of the things, I want you to, inside that cabin, I had a high-density foam stuck to the ceiling so that if the boat did roll, I wouldn't injure my head. And stuck into that foam were notes that Kim, my beautiful daughter Hannah, had put together and laminated for me and pin-cushioned into this foam. And one of the notes that I was lying and looking at for most of this race was a quote from Muhammad Ali. And he deals in this quote with the impossible and the possible in our lives. And this is what he said. He said, impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men who find it easier to live in a world that they've been given than to explore the power that they have to change it. Impo impossible is not a fact, it's an opinion. Impossible is not a declaration. It's a dare. Impossible is just potential. Impossible is nothing. How's that? Six weeks after that storm, on day 75, this is six o'clock in the evening, a helicopter flies overboard. I am 20 nautical miles away from the island with my wife and the cameraman. This is where this photograph comes from. I'm just about to finish what many people have con considered to be impossible, an impossible journey. At 9 o'clock the following morning, I crossed the finish line in Antigua. I'm minus 18 kilograms of body weight here. Now, some of you are probably thinking, geez, Pete, that's a great uh, body weight loss program. I would not recommend it at all. But I love this photograph for many reasons. But one of the reasons why I really like this photograph is because directly underneath my boat, I have six fish living with me. They are this big. Dorado. Anybody heard of Dorado here? Dorado. Overseas, they call it mahe-mahe, or dolphin fish. They are the only fish in the sea that mate for life. How's that? They lived with me for the last six weeks of my row, and they changed the entire story and entire journey for me. And I'm going to touch on that 
a little bit later. But here's some footage first from both of these rows. If you can see in that last clip, I have that um, thousand-yard vacant stare. 76 days is a long time to be um, out at sea. In fact, for the last two weeks of that row, I estimate, I could hear crystal clear audible voices inside my head. I averaged four hours sleep a day on this row. Um, <clears throat> those voices are gone, by the way. <laughs> if anybody's wondering, it's all okay now. But I'll never forget, I got off the boat, and, and Kim was the first person, obviously, I grabbed again, 76 days, a long time to be alone. I grabbed my beautiful wife, Kim, I put my head into her neck, and I said, Kim, if I ever say that I want to do something like that again, please, you absolutely have to stop me. She said, Pete, don't worry, I will. But now, having said that, um, rowing another ocean is not high on my priority list at the moment. However, does everybody here know the Cape to Rio yacht race? Do you know that it has not been rowed before? <laughs> it's just a thought. <laughs> Never know where that can go. In September 2011, I get a phone call from a very good friend of mine, Bram Malherba. He's an incredible person. Him and David Greer are the only two South Africans, the only people in the world that have run the entire length of the Great Wall of China. 
4,200 kilometers, 98 consecutive marathons. You may or may not have heard of him before. Incredible person. He phones me up and he says, Pete, listen, I have an opportunity to form a two-man South African team to go down to Antarctica to take part in an international race to the South Pole to commemorate the first two people ever to get to the Pole, the, Dutch, um, sorry, the Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen and the British naval officer Robert Falcon Scott exactly 100 years ago. Do you want to be part of that team with me? I said, Brom, are you completely nuts? Of course I want to be part of that team with you. I mean, who in their right mind wouldn't? I said, but I'm a barefoot, cocky brook South African. I don't know too much about cold. And from what you've just said, we have three months to go before the start of this race. I said, so long as we can go and do some training in some really good, uh, cold areas and do a polar survival course, I'm in. And so, for the next three months, you know how quickly three months can go. Brahm and I spent some time in Iceland. This is at the top of a glacier called Longical Glacier. It's the second highest glacier in Iceland at 3,000 meters above sea level. Great training. Perfect conditions, you can see there, wind about 80 kilometers per hour, just blizzard the whole time, which made skiing very difficult. I had no experience of cross-country skiing, let alone pulling a sled that would weigh 100 kilometers in the South Pole and then trekking 900 kilometers uh, to get to the pole itself. So we needed to ski properly. These conditions are treacherous up on a glacier just because on a glacier you will find crevasse fields. You will not see them. They are covered by ice bridges. And if you're trekking in these kind of conditions and you fall into a crevasse field, uh, your chances of survival are slim. So we spent some time in France. The glacier at 3,500 meters. We had 10 days of perfect weather. And that was the sum total of our ski training. The rest of the time, Brom and I pulled tires up and down beaches along our eastern Cape uh, shores. Often when people see this photograph, they say, you guys don't need to show this photograph. Please, the wheels fell off a long time ago with the two of you. <laughs> and then the time was up. I had to get uh, from my house, which is 23 kilometers north of East London, um, down to Cape Town to get onto this Russian Aleutian aircraft that was going to take some scientists and the seven international teams taking part in this race to the Russian Novo base on the, on the edge of Antarctica. And something quite profound happened to me while I was sitting in my car, reversing out of the driveway for the last time to drive down to Cape Town. I want you to picture the scene. I have my beautiful wife, Kim, sitting next to me. I have my daughter, Hannah, sitting just behind me. And in the back of my bucky, I have my sled, my skis, my ski poles, and everything that we need to sustain ourselves with for this journey in Antarctica. And as I look at my house and everything around us, two thoughts go through my mind. The first one I keep quiet about. I think, I wonder if I'm ever going to see this place again. That was the first thought. But more importantly, the second thought was, and I turned to Kim and I say, Kim, isn't this absolutely so exciting? Because in three months' time or whenever we, I come back, when we come back into this driveway, the very next time we drive into this driveway, there's going to be a story that needs to be told. Yes, and I wonder what's going to be inside that story. And that would be the truth. In three months' time, I would drive back into that driveway. And as we're sitting here today, I want you to think about your story. If you had to come back to this conference in a year's time, or five years' time, or in ten years, whatever, and sit next to the same people, you're going to have a story that you need to tell them. And how do we make sure that that story we are going to tell is going to be filled with success and significance?
three months later, Kim and I drove into that driveway again. There is a story that needs to be told. And I'm going to share a little bit of it with you this morning right now. Getting down to the Russian Novo base, absolutely spectacular. We had two days there to prepare ourselves for the last time, get all our food into the sleds, because once we left this place, we would be unsupported until we got to the South Pole. Once we left the Russian Novo base, we had a 10-day acclimatization trek to get up to altitude and the start of the race. Now, Antarctica is an amazing place. It's not just a small piece of ice at the bottom of our planet. How's this? On average, on average, Antarctica is known as the highest, driest, coldest, windiest continent on the planet. You very quickly, you can't really see it in, in, this, uh, in these pictures, but there are mountains in the background. Um, you very quickly go from sea ice level, which is where we are now, so sea level, up to a high plateau that starts at 3,200 meters. The highest point on that plateau is 4,600 meters. The South Pole itself is at 3,500 uh, meters above sea level. That's twice the height of where we are right now. The coldest temperature, by the way, that plateau is greater in area than the United States of America. Three kilometers of ice bigger than the United States of America. Incredible piece of, um, incredible continent. The coldest temperature ever measured, minus 89 degrees centigrade. That's without wind chill factor at the Russian Vostok station. How cold is that, you may ask? You would need to pack a jersey. <laughs> We asked a scientist, um, a Belgian scientist, when they were there. she said basically if you had to go outside in that temperature and bare your teeth to the wind, they would break. That's how cold it is. It's difficult to describe. The two teams that you see there, and this is a climatization trick, the team closest to you, they were the Brits. They were out to show, they're the ice gods, by the way, these two teams. They were out to show that it should have been Scott who got to the pole first exactly 100 years ago. There's a bit of tension in the adventure world about that. And then the team furthest from you, that's the Norwegian team out to show that it was, it was right for Amundsen to get to the pole exactly 100 years ago first. 35 days, 34 days before Scott did. And I'm sure you all know the story that Scott and his whole team perished on their return journey um, to the ice shelf and their, and their ship. And the two Kakibruk barefoot South Africans with three months of training, guess who we hung out with on those 10 days? And had it been, not been for the information that we gleaned from these two opposing teams... I'm not so sure that I'd be standing here right now with all my extremities intact as they are. Getting up to altitude in Antarctica, supremely beautiful. Absolutely spectacular. But once you get up to that plateau, it is a dry, white, freezing desert. There's no living thing up there. Nothing like you see in National Geographic. No bird, no seal, no penguins. As we know, definitely no polar bears. That's up in the North Pole. Um, it is devoid 100% of life. It's this flat, white, freezing desert. It's an incredible place to be. And then the race organizers drew a line in the ice and the snow. They pulled out a rifle. They let off a shot, and they said, Sayonara, we'll see you at the South Pole. We had one compulsory stop to get to at the 24-hour uh, compulsory medical stop, about the halfway mark, um, and that would be the next time we see people. As you see it there, seven international teams. The least prepared team, Brahm and I, three months of training. It's not what we wanted, it's what we had. The next least prepared team had trained for two years for this race. Most of these guys had been to the North Pole because it's their stomping ground and it's easy to get to from Europe. Some of them, the guys with big budgets, had been down to Antarctica to train for, just for this race. 
Brahmana, you can't see us. We're at the other end of that line. We're not Kaki Brook and Barefoot in this photograph, just by the way, as well. It's minus 35 um, at the start. Let's fast forward the race, day five. We didn't know it, but there are just three teams left standing. Just three. And Brahm and I are one of those three teams. So how did we do it? What was the process that we put in place um, to make sure that when we conceived this idea, we saw it through to success? And remember now, I speak metaphorically. So you need to apply this in your own way to your own business and your own lives. But here, your story, the legacy that you're going to be leave behind within your business, your family, and your community begins right here. And it's amazing, I speak at conferences all over the world and there are always people within the audience that do not have this in place in their lives. And if they do, some of them have a vision this big because that's what they believe they're able to achieve. I want to put it to you that we can achieve absolutely anything we set out to achieve in our lives, but put the right process in place. And that process begins with having the right dream and the right vision. As we get older, we lose the ability to dream. I asked my daughter the other day, I said, Hannah, what would you like to become one day when you grow up? And she looked at me and she said, Dad, I want to become an extreme rock climbing ballerina. <laughs> I said, what is that? Okay, so now I'm a BA brain, okay? So BA brains, what we do is we visualize things immediately. As it comes in, there's a picture. So I said, and we're trying to encourage Hannah to go in her own direction in life and you know, we're just pushing her that way. And I said, Hannah, do you know what? That's fine. I will teach you how to do all the rock climbing, but there is no ways that you are getting me up a mountain in a pink tutu. You see, in her head, she loves ballet and she loves rock climbing, and that's just the best way to do both for the rest of your life. <laughs> Albert Schweitzer says, the tragedy of life is what dies inside a person while they still live. Let me repeat that. The tragedy of life is what dies inside you while you still live, and I'm sure that we don't want that to be part of our lives. So we need to have vision, and we need to have dreams, and we need to have targets, and they need to be great. If this is the vision that you're going to have, then that's the story one day you can tell. If it's that big, I guarantee you that's the story. But what will enable us? You see, it's all good and well having a big vision and a big dream for your lives, but what is ultimately going to enable us to see that vision and that dream through despite all the hardships that we are going to face? Because I do not know one story that has ever been, great story that has ever been told without adversity attached to it somewhere along the line. This picture here is 20 nautical miles before the end of the first row across the Atlantic Ocean with Bill Godfrey. In that four-day storm, Bill and I didn't sleep for one second. Now, we all know what it's like to not sleep for 24 hours because we've been to a matric dance, okay? But once you start moving into 48, 72, and then 96 hours, I guarantee you things are going to start changing inside your head. I want you to try and picture the scene. Sitting on your rowboat at 4 o'clock in the morning, this is... This was my dreaded hour every single morning on both of the rows. Because you're sitting in a subconscious state. And your subconscious mind is giving you, let's just give it a number, five absolutely crystal clear reasons why when the sun comes up and you have a chance to get onto that sat phone and call in the cavalry. And these reasons range from 
You're never going to see your wife again. You're not going to watch your daughter grow up, etc., etc. And they're good reasons. Very clear. The only thing that will stop you from making that phone call is your drive and your passion towards achieving that vision and that dream that you have for your business. So your passion for it, your drive for it, has got to be greater than any obstacle that gets put in your way. So if we have a big dream, understand that it's not just about the dream, that there's a journey that we need to go on. And in that journey, we're going to experience hardship, and it's our passion and drive that will get us through that. For us, it was the will to win. That's what got us through. We wanted to break the world record, and we wanted to win the race. And that drive pushed us through to the end. So you're going to be tested physically, spiritually, mentally. I hope you're not tested like this at where you go to work. Um, but this is light frostbite on my cheeks. My lips underneath my nose is the worst. I don't have a photograph of that. I saved that uh, from you. This is about a week after the race, so I'd healed quite a lot. We backed down. You don't heal up at altitude as, as well as you heal um, at sea level. Um, this is proper frostbite. Okay, this is a picture taken at the halfway mark of the Welsh team, the guys that came second in the race. We saw them six months after the race, and when we shook hands with them, their handshakes were a little bit shorter than they had been prior to the start of the race. Okay, that's real frostbite. Why am I showing you these things? I'm not showing you these things um, to try and make you think that I'm a brave person. I'm an ordinary person. But in, I'm showing you these things so that we understand in order to achieve great things in our lives, we are going to have to nyamazela. We are going to have to endure. We're going to have to suck it up, bite our bottom lips, and keep going. The worst thing about the row, and you'll be very pleased I don't have a photograph of this one, is your bottom. <laughs> Can you feel those two bones you're sitting on? Okay, now that rowing boat does this 24-7. So that bone is pushing against all the muscle and tissue and whatever is there, and after uh, 10 or 15 days, that bone pushes through all the muscle and tissue, and it just becomes skin and bone. It doesn't go through the skin. And when you sit down, you sit down on that spot, and I call it the sweet spot. Okay, because you cannot get away from it. That's where you sit. You can't row with your one cheek up or on your feet. or on, It's it. You sit there. And you start getting these little pimples. Sorry about the nature of this, but I mean, this is what happens in expeditions. You start getting these little pimples on the sweet spot. And because you are wet all the time, 24-7 pretty much, um, those pimples just get bigger and bigger and bigger until they're the size of five rand coins. I'm not going to ask you if any of you have had pressure sores before or boils, but if you have, you will know what they feel like. Every hour and a half, you've got to get up, curl those hands around the oars, put that bottom with those pressure sores back on the seat, suck it up a little bit, bite your bottom lip with pain, and row for another hour and a half. Why? That's your vision. Because you want to win the race, and you want to break the world records, and it doesn't matter what that race throws at you. The will to win is greater than the adversity that you are facing. It's not all doom and gloom, though. I could speak for many hours on the hardships, and as a lot of adventurers love to do that, but they're also great stories. And the reason why I'm showing you these things right now is because I believe that there's a fundamental um, characteristic about being able to focus on positive things all the time that will come through in our lives. And it's so important. The Greeks have a word for it. And it's called kairos. 
And it's a moment that you will embrace in your life that will change things forever, for the good. It's called a Kairos moment. And if we are constantly focused on the negative things that are happening, and we all know that we could speak for days on the negative things that are happening in this country and around the world, you would just fall into this downward spiral, and eventually you will just not be able to see these Kairos moments coming past. And it's these Kairos moments that are vital um, for yourselves and for, uh, for yourselves to become su successful in your journeys. This little bird here landed on my boat. It's a juvenile storm petrel. I named him Simon. This is during that six-day storm. I'm on parachute anchor here. This is in that storm. I named him Simon after Paul Simon and Lady Blacksmith Mabaza's song, Homeless. I couldn't call him Lady Blacksmith Mabaza, Paul Simon, so I just called him Simon. He stayed with me for three days. Now, the important thing about this is I'm lying in this cabin wondering whether I'm going to survive or not. And then as soon as Simon arrived, my focus changed completely 100% to every time the boat pitched, I don't want to kill Simon. I don't want to kill Simon. I need to look after Simon. So things changed inside my head here. Edmund Hillary said it's not the mountain we conquer, it's ourselves. And so this was the beginning of change for me in this radical storm. Now, I've just written this book here called The Eighth Summit. And the eighth summit, we all know that mountaineers want to climb the seven highest summits on each continent or e the highest mountain on each continent. There are seven of them. The greatest uh, mountain that we need to conquer is ourselves. And focusing on the positive things is one of these ways. So I went from, oh my goodness, I'm worried about myself to, oh my goodness, I mustn't kill Simon. And it changed things for me during that storm. These are my Dorado, two of them. They became part of my family. I know some of you, I, I formed a relationship with six fish, okay? It's out there. <laughs> now, you may think that that is weird. But I really believe that there is a, a rift that has been caused bet, um, between humans and animals that I've had the incredible privilege of being able to break on some of my journeys. And with, you say, with fish, is it possible? I don't know, but that's my experience of it. These six fish lived with me for six weeks underneath my boat. And for six weeks, every single sunrise and sunset, they would jump out the water and they would look at me. Okay, it started further away from the boat, and as the weeks went past, they came closer and closer. If you ever see my documentary, Not Alone, you'll see footage of this. It's absolutely amazing. They would jump out the water and they would make eye contact with me. Except not like this, okay? They can't do it like that. It's like they've got this big face. So it's the one eyeball that does it, okay? And at first I didn't know what they were doing, and then I realized that they were trying to communicate. They were making eye contact with me, and they were not happy if they didn't see me on, on board the boat. If they didn't see me, they would jump out the water and they'd hit their bodies hard against the water, make a, a slapping noise, or swim up to my rudder and hit my rudder hard. Boom, I've got some footage of it as well. Um, on that documentary. Absolutely incredible. They would not stop that until they made eye contact with me. And as soon as they did, they would stop. Every day, when it got too hot in the afternoons, I would swim just for two minutes. Just get off the boat and they would swim around me and look at me like they are um, in this picture right there. At night, you know the sea is full of bioluminescence? It's a phosphoretic kind of plankton. All you have to do is touch it. And it lights up. You know those, break, those green breakings, those light sticks? Okay, that color, that's what it's like. It's 
a plankton. And sometimes the plankton is so thick, it's like oil. So as soon as you do your stroke through the water, it doesn't go splish. It goes vroom. And as your swirl goes through, you can see that swirl for as far as you can see. Bright green. And as you lift the oars up, as the water touches down, this has hap generally happened when the conditions are perfect, the sea is like glass. As the water would drip, drip down and hit the, uh, the sea itself, it would light up to this bright green color. Nobody needs drugs when you're out there on something like this, I promise you. And these fish would be in this phosphoretic plankton, absolutely spectacular, sitting underneath my oars every night, swapping over, hunting flying fish, etc. They got me through the last six weeks of this row, changed absolutely everything, because underneath my boat, I had six living things that I could focus on. Remember, it's not the mountain that we conquer, it's ourselves. Then we need to, so we need the vision, we understand that we need to be passionate about whatever it is that we are aiming to achieve. We need to collaborate well, surround ourselves with the best team of people possible. And I could speak for hours on this one. I'm just going to touch on a few things. Those people that you surround yourself with must share the same principles and value systems as yourself. Things like honesty, integrity, reliability, accountability. You know when Brahm phoned me to do this race with him across the South Pole? I said, Brahm, I will do this race with you. And some of you will think I'm weird when I say this. But I will do this race with you on one condition that during this race, your focus is going to be to look after me. I want you to look after me. If I'm not eating properly, make sure I eat. If I'm dehydrating, make sure I hydrate. If, I, if I'm feeling demotivated, I want you to motivate me. Tell me a joke. And I will do exactly the same thing for you. My focus in this race is going to be to make sure that you're okay. Because you see, we cannot do this alone we wouldn't have been able to race it alone. The only way that we can get to the end is if we look after each other and make sure that we're okay um, once we get to the end. Incredibly important part of the journey, and I really believe that one of the greatest reasons why the other five teams, sorry, the other four teams in that race didn't make it had a lot to do with this one right there. Not collaborating properly within the team, having diff different principles, having different outcomes inside their heads for what they wanted to achieve um, inside the race. Then we are constantly looking towards um, innovation, okay, so towards improving every single day. When I was rowing, how can I get that rowing boat 0,01 km per hour faster on the next shift than I was doing on the previous shift? Raising the gates of my oars, moving that 30 kilogram life raft, constantly focused all the time on improving. Now, I don't know your businesses. But I guarantee you that when you leave this conference, there is something that you can do. There's something that you can do every single day that will make you more efficient and better at what you do. This was our cooking area. When we stopped trekking after 16 hours, we trekked 16 hours a day in this Antarctic race. When we stopped trekking, you start your stopwatch. Put up tent, get in, start your stoves, make food, make water, um, deal with body issues medically, um, eat, go to sleep, 120 minutes, two hours. The Norwegians, we didn't know it, were doing exactly the same in 40 minutes. That's a lot. We knew that we were not doing well here, but we were constantly trying to improve this area. As I said, the Norwegians are like ice gods. They know what they're doing. Um, we worked out at the end of the race that had we been able to trek that extra 80 minutes every single time, 
we would have beaten the Norwegians. They came first in the race. But how's this? Just this one thing, just this one thing. If we had been able to improve on it and do it in 40 minutes, we would have beaten the Norwegians. The Norwegians beat us by a whole week. Think about it. Just the one thing. And there were many other things that we could have improved on. The first team, and I love this story, the first team that we met in the first row across the Atlantic Ocean were two British Royal Marines, the biggest guys I've ever seen in my life. They were huge slabs of muscle, Ben and Orlando. This photograph they sent to us after the race was um, taken by a yacht that passed them was taken about three-quarters of the way through their journey. That's Ben sitting on oars. Sorry, that's Orlando sitting on oars. Look at the size of him. He's huge. He's a monster. At this stage, Billy and I were looking like two... Uh, prisoners of war. <clears throat> they came up to us for the two weeks before the start of the race. They were going to win the race. They were going to break the world record. There was no other boat in this race except for them. And it's a nice way to think. But to be verbal about it all the time is a different story. Two hours before the start of the race. It's a very uh, stressful time. We're working on our boats, making sure that everything's okay. They come up to us and they say, Bill Pete, as you know, we're both British Royal Marines. We've got duties to do in Afghanistan and Iraq. Wherever, when we get to Antigua, we're going to have to pretty much go off immediately. So by the time you guys get in, we'll probably be gone. But so, good luck for the race. <laughs> you don't say that to South Africans, please. They said, but don't worry, here's something to remember us by. You know those bicycle juice bottles? There's a white bicycle juice bottle. You can't see their name. It's in the front of the boat. Their logo was Go Commander. Forget that. They gave us this juice bottle and we said thank you very much and we threw it inside our cabin not realizing how important this was going to be for us on our journey. Fast forward again, two days into the race and I'm sorry about the nature of this discussion once again. Try, okay. But going to the toilet became quite a critical thing because each time you would need to go for a number one overboard, you'd have to, and this is how it works, picture the scene. Or oh, picture whatever you want out of the scene, okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> Pull the oars in, strap them together. Get you out of the rowing shoes, get onto the side of the boat, get it done. Back into the seat, feet back into the shoes, oars, and off you go. Three minutes, minimum. The person who's not rowing stands on the side of the boat. The boat's like this. Another three minutes, not rowing. So obviously, we had to come up with a plan. Enter the Go Commando juice bottle. Okay, now we worked out that that time was costing us three nautical miles a day. It's not far. But in the end, it would cost us a lot. So now, now we could sit in the seat. <laughs> and it took a bit of practice, but we could sit in the seat and get it done and throw it over the side of the boat. The person who wasn't rowing could stand in the middle of the boat, get it done, and throw it over the side of the boat without disturbing the person who was rowing. Although it is a little bit disturbing because you have to watch the whole process. And as I said, <laughs> and as I said the mystery is gone after a couple of days in any case. But now we worked out, we are saving three nautical miles a day. Ten days before the race finishes, we're in first position. A boat called No Fear is in second position, 30 nautical miles behind us. The boat in third position is Go Commando, 150 nautical miles behind us. Yes, please. Ten days before the race finishes, our sat phone breaks. No more communication with the outside world until we got to Antigua. We get to Antigua ten days later. Oh, by the way, that bottle is perfect for two reasons. One, 750 milliliters seemed to be the perfect amount to contain. And two, it's got a nice wide head like that, okay? Because something like this is just not going to do it. <laughs> okay. 
So when we get to Antigua, we find out that we're still in first position. No Fear is now 24 nautical miles behind us, and Go Commando is five days behind us. That night we celebrate. We come back to the boat the next morning because we've got three days in Antigua. We need to clean the boat, get it into the container, get it shipped back to South Africa. And we want to do that first and then relax afterwards. We get to the boat, we stand on the boat, and as we stand on the boat, guess what rolls over the deck? The Go Commando juice bottle. We pick it up and we realize then that we are not going to be there when the British team, when the British Go Commando team arrives in five days' time because we're leaving in three days' time. So we wash the bottle out as much as we can. <laughs> we find a new cap for it. We get a permanent black marker pen and we write on it, Dear Ben and Orlando, well done for the great race. Sorry we couldn't be here to see you guys in. All the best, Bill and Pete. And we left it with the race organizers to give them when they got in. And Bill and I often talk about the race. And one of the things that we speak about is, and laugh about is whether they took that bottle and used it. <laughs> because we believe they deserve to have, or whether it's sitting proudly on somebody's mantelpiece. I suppose the story here is this. It's a little illustration that had we not done that, one thing, we would have lost the race. We would have come second. And our whole thing was to come first um, in that race. So I don't know what it is that you can do when you get back to work or with your families or whatever venture that you're in, but there is something that you can do to make yourself better and more efficient um, at it. And then we all know this word here, discipline. We've heard it many, many times. For me, there are two types of discipline in life. One, external discipline. Bill waking me up every hour and a half to go onto duty and me doing the same for him. Me phoning, imagine this, me phoning Nicola at 4 o'clock in the morning and saying, Nicola, come, let's go for a 30-kilometer run. It's much easier for Nicola to say, do you know what, Pete, absolutely I'm in, and it's raining, it's cold outside, than if her alarm clock was going off. Now let's start talking about self-discipline. Try and picture the scene again. Your alarm clock is going off on Yamazela, the boat. You all know that sound. You're alone, you're lonely, you're exhausted. Your hands are like I've shown you, your bottom is like I uh, have told you about. <laughs> You've got salt sores in between your fingers, between your toes, and everywhere where the sun doesn't shine. You're hungry. You're wet still from the previous row. It's raining outside. It's pitch black. And there are waves breaking over the boat. It's 3 a.m. And your alarm is making that noise. You've got to get out there and row. What do you do? That's right. You press the snooze button. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay if you don't want to win the race and if you don't want to break the world records. But if you do, you need to suck it up a little bit. You need to get out there, sit back on that bottom, put those hands around the oars and row for another hour and a half. Why? Because if you don't, your competitors are going to overtake you. You're not going to win the race. You're not going to achieve that vision and that, and that dream. But here's the thing with self-discipline. Nobody in the whole world will ever know if you've pressed that snooze button or not. Nobody, not a soul. It's just you. But I guarantee you, you press that snooze button once on that venture, just once, and something irrevocable changes inside your head without you even knowing. Because in two weeks' time, when conditions are worse, your hands are worse, your bottom's worse, you're even more lonely, etc., etc., Will it be easier or more difficult to press the snooze button? 
it'll be easier. And then maybe a week later, you'll do it twice in one night or three times. And then you'll start convincing yourself that, you know what, first position is not that important, just a podium position will be good. And then maybe a week later, it'll become just rowing across the Atlantic Ocean is a fantastic achievement. And it is. But that's not the vision. I believe that if we can move more and more away from external discipline to self-discipline, not only will we be met with success, but we may even touch on a bit of greatness, dare I say it, here and there. We need to understand as well, there's a common thread in life. There's a common law in life that says what we put into this life is going to come back at us, good and bad. We get to the halfway mark of this race across Antarctica and we come across the British Green Team at the 24-hour stop. Andrew had broken his right arm. On day four of the race, he had fallen in a whiteout. They were there, the, his, he had been extricated from his team, taken to the halfway mark, and he waited there for a few weeks for his other two team members to get there. His other two team members arrived two hours, sorry, six hours before we did, which means 24 hours later, those team members would go off again, six hours before we did. And Andrew, with his broken arm, decided that he would join them. We're waving goodbye to them, and as they're going off, the race doctor standing next to me is a bit of a dodgy race doctor, I'll tell you why now. Um, says to me, Pete, you know what? This team is not going to make it to the South Pole, no chance. Not with Andrew and his broken arm pulling a 100-kilogram sled. Not without assistance. Brahm and I go back into our tent, and you know what the one thing we discuss? is their story. The British green team story was just about a change, potentially. And did we have it in us to assist them? We decided that we would. So we followed their ski tracks six hours later, and we quickly came upon their tent. They were busy sleeping, and Andrew, I think, was the one who was awake because we gave him our offer, and that was that we would take Andrew's kit, split it between Brahm and I, and if they trekked according to our regime, we'd take them into the pole. And somebody mumbled something from the tent. Now, when Andrew left, the race doctor gave him a bucket of pills, painkillers, the red ones, the blue ones, and I think there may have even been one or two recreational stuff in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> and he mumbled something, and we carried, we carried on trekking. It's very cold. It was minus 45 at the time. We carried on trekking. We didn't want to stop too long. We put up tent. We had our four hours sleep, and when we woke up, this note was inside the tent, saying that they would love to join us on the journey and that they had taken a really hard time. And so we skied with them. You, if, you get this, if you get my book, I have books available that I can sign for you later. Um, you'll be able to read this letter in more detail. But um, <clears throat> we skied with them to the South Pole. That's the South Pole in the distance. Andrew's on the far left-hand side of your screen. Um, he's still got his sled, but there's nothing in his sled except for his rolled-out down sleeping bag and his big down um, duvet jacket, sat phone, and one or two items of food. So what started off with us helping the British Green Team, do you know what? It eventually started helping us in the end. So everything completely changed. Not that we needed help, but having three really good polar explorers with us gave us a sense of confidence. Although we were pulling extra weight, it was worth it. I'm, I'm one of nine siblings, okay? It's a big family that I belong to, but I've got another three brothers for the rest of my I don't need another three brothers, but I've got them for the rest of my life. So what started off with us helping them was coming back at us many, many, many more times than we had um, ever expected. Do that with your team and watch how it improves. And then, we need to focus on the small things every single day. For us, in order to 
achieve this. It was not just about two sleds, 90 days of food, um, etc., trekking to the South Pole. It was thousands and thousands of little things that needed had to be in place before we could go. And if you can focus on those small important things every single day, do you know what's going to happen? The big things just fall into place. And that's us getting to the South Pole. That South Pole there, that ball, by the way, is not made out of metal, because if it was, this is minus 48 degrees centigrade in this photograph. It's cold. Um, most people get up to it and they kiss it, and if you kiss a metal ball in minus 48, you're going to be there for a long time, and you're going <laughs> to depart with uh, some missing body piece. Right, we had a film crew that came with us. They spent the first few days with us. They flew to the South Pole, and they came out for the last two days to film us coming in. In between, Brahm and I filmed each other. When they got back, the footage was used, and a television series called Bravehearts was made. I have nothing to do with the naming of that movie. I'm no Braveheart. I'm no hero. I'm an ordinary person that has put together a process. And I know that when I start something, I can finish it successfully with significance. There are many other points that I can speak about that are inside this book that I don't have time to right now. But this is the last five minutes of that movie. I think this race, um, for me, in my opinion, is the toughest endurance race on the planet because this is pure survival. I mean, if you make a mistake at any stage of the race and you leave things too long, you will die. Not only is it far every day and not only is it um, just completely groundhog dayish all the time and, and lonely and uh, isolated and deprived of life and views and everything is harsh. The sun is harsh, the temperature is harsh. It's, it's incredible. But having said that, it is also one of the most incredible places on the planet to be. It's one of those, if I hadn't survived it, it would have been the worst story on the planet. But I have survived it. And when I look back now, I'm already missing it. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I suppose what I'm missing is the triumph of getting in. It's an hour and a half before the cutoff. The plane's already landed at Camp 100, ready to take the remaining competitors home after this epic South Pole race. And as you can see behind me, Team British Green and Brahman Pete, South African team, are one kilometer from the South Pole now. They're really cutting it fine. It's coming right down to the wire. I certainly hope they're gonna be okay. We're gonna follow them into the pole, make sure they're fine, get them on the plane and get them home. It looked like a brick on the horizon. And eventually this thing got closer and closer and closer. It, it was almost surreal. Uh, it, it, it was like in a dream. I was very much in a dream state. It was, this can't be finishing.
going to be brilliant skiing across the finish line with you guys and a privilege. It has been an absolute privilege. journey, and I really look at it as a journey, not a race, um, has been very much one for me of humility. It's not about bravery, it's not about courage, it's not about me. I'm so alive, I feel so alive about life. It's like a love story. I have a purpose. When you get home, you love your wife more than you've ever loved her, you love your child more than you've ever loved her. I was just thinking to myself over and over, how much in my life do I have to be grateful for? When you come back, Everything's different. With absolute commitment and conviction to live out my life to its fullest, fullest potential from here on. You realize the fragility um, of life and you just, it just makes you want to appreciate things more. I really appreciate it. I don't think I've loved anyone ever as much as you and Ben. I can't wait to be with you. Hannah, you are the most beautiful thing in my life. Everything that I do, I do because of you. I love you to Beetlejuice and back. History doesn't celebrate great men and women for the things they did or didn't do. It remembers you for doing the things you didn't have to do. That is also what makes a hero out of ordinary people like Bramal Herba and Peter Van Kitz. As for my quest, well, I found much more than just a hero in Brown and Pete. I found a reason to believe in myself again. One of the questions I'm asked most in my life is, so Peter, why do you do what you do? And it's a complex question because I could answer it on many different levels. But this is not one of those reasons. I 
use my expeditions to raise funds for the Coral de Toy Center for the Deaf and Operation Smile. But if you say to me, Peter, give me one of the greatest reasons why you do what I do, what you do, I would say this, that I do what I do because that is the vision and the dream that I have for my life. And I know if the, I'm doing that thing that makes me feel alive, everything else will fall into place in my life. But when I'm sitting on my sled and I don't know if I'm going to live the next few hours out, or if I'm lying in my rowing boat in a storm and I don't know if I'm going to live that storm out, I don't think about Operation Smile or Coral Toy Center for the Deaf or my dream and my vision. I think about this. And think about the people that I've surrounded myself with in my life. Those people that have got me to that point. And I think, what would they say to me at that particular time? And in the end, that is what motivates me. Kim and Hannah wrote notes for me. And they put it inside. They packed my date bags for the South Pole trip. And one of the notes that I got close to the end of the race was, Pete, when you get to that point that is too painful and too difficult to do for yourself, then do it for us. Let me leave this last thing with you. Every venture that you take part in in your life is going to demand clear vision, dynamic strategy, precise planning and preparation, absolute honesty, integrity, uprightness of character, self-discipline, many other things. But above all, it's going to take resolve. It's going to take nyamazela, fussbait. It's going to take endurance. And if we can endure and never, ever, ever give up on that thing, that vision, I guarantee you, you will not fail. So when you leave here, dream big. Go out and seek out the extraordinary in your life and in your businesses and leave a legacy worthy of your name. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a great pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. Thank you.